Hey everyone, so just a few announcements. A reminder that I have launched the investor matching tool. So if you are an investor looking for impact investments that match your criteria, you can fill out a form and let me know what you're looking for and I will match you with impact investments that meet your criteria and certainly contact you. And if you're interested in an introduction, I can help arrange that. And if you are a founder or someone running an impact fund and you're looking to raise capital, there's also forms for you to complete there as well. Uh, let me know what type of investment you're looking for and what type of impact you have. And I will make those uh, matches where I can. So you can visit davidoleary.ca slash matching dash tool to find all that information. And I figure I'd just give a preview of uh, some of the guest podcast guests I have coming up before the end of the year. So first, Graham Singh from Trinity Centers Foundation is joining to discuss the fascinating work he's doing to transform church properties for community impact. Sarah Burns, who's the founder and CEO of NIA Crowdfund, is joining us to discuss the launch of NIA and her efforts to democratize access to impact investments in African businesses. Natasha Freitas, who's CEO and co-founder of Needslist, is joining us to discuss her work building software and solutions for communities displaced by climate change and conflict worldwide. Denise Hearn, who's founder, advisor, and author, she's uh, recently launched a a newsletter called Embodied Economics, is joining us to discuss her work, the problems with ESG and impact investing, and more broadly, the market dynamics underpinning capitalism itself. That's a fascinating discussion. And I just recorded today, actually, with Michael Lukowitz, who's co-founder and general partner at Possibilian Ventures. And he joins to discuss the work they're doing, investing for systemic change, in a world of technological disruption. So we talk a lot about Web3, blockchain, NFTs, DAOs, and a lot more. So hopefully you'll join in for that discussion. And check out the newsletter this week. In preparation for that conversation, I've been reading a lot of articles on the whole world of Web3. And if you're not familiar with it and haven't heard those terms yet, uh, you will probably soon. This is a pretty big uh, paradigm shift that is happening in the world of technology and in particular the internet. So uh, check that out. And with that, let's get on to the podcast. You're listening to the Impact Investing Podcast. I'm your host, David O'Leary. I'm a reformed free market capitalist who now spends his time trying to harness the power of the markets for good. And I started this podcast for anyone who wants to join me as I explore the world at the intersection of purpose and profit. Investing in emerging markets isn't easy. Investing into emerging markets when you want to make a positive social and environmental impact presents even more challenges. For instance, raising capital is more challenging because you have to overcome both the typical investor belief that positive impact will come at a cost to returns and the tendency of investors to write off unfamiliar markets as far too risky. Today's guest co-founded an asset management firm that has successfully navigated these challenges on its path to growing its asset base to over $300 million USD. Serge Leveur-Chesson is Managing Director of Impact and COO at Serona Asset Management, an asset manager investing in private equity and private debt in frontier and emerging markets around the world. 
What's especially interesting is that Serona was born out of a relatively small but highly respected charitable organization known as MEDA, or the Mennonite Economic Development Associates, which itself got its start in 1953 as a social enterprise when seven North American Mennonite business people began running a dairy farm with Ukrainian Mennonite refugees in Paraguay who had escaped the Second World War. During this episode of the podcast, Serge and I discuss Sorona's unique history and how that shapes its culture to this day. The way Sorona invests in and alongside financial intermediaries in emerging and frontier markets, its approach to impact measurement and management as a fund of funds, the role that faith plays in many communities across the globe, examples of the types of direct and indirect investments that Sorona makes, and Serge's involvement in CAFID, the Canadian Forum for Impact Investment and Development. And be sure to stay tuned to the very end when Serge shares his thoughts for what is necessary for unlocking more impact investment dollars into emerging and frontier markets. With that, let's get on to the podcast. Serge, welcome to the podcast. Well, thanks, David, for inviting me. I'm, I'm quite happy and uh, pleased to be here and, and looking forward to the chat. Yeah, me too. I've been meaning to do this for a little while now, and you could have been maybe one of the actually earliest guests on the podcast because we we go back uh, a number of years now. And for for everybody listening, Serge was really generous with his time and expertise and kind of experience in lending some of that to to me and the team at World Vision when we were getting started out because of Serona's kind of interesting history and genesis story. There were a lot of experiences that they brought to the table that I who were wanting to learn about, particularly as a charity nonprofit working to move into the impact investment space. And so we'll talk a little bit about that during the genesis here. But Surge is a wealth of knowledge, is involved in all sorts of ways in the impact investment industry globally and here in Canada. And so I'm really excited to have you on. Can you give everybody a little introduction to who you are and what you do in your own words? Sure. So I'm one of the founding partners of a group called Serona Asset Management, which is a, a Canadian impact investment group. We're based in Canada, but we do have offices in the Netherlands and the U.S. Uh, and we uh, primarily operate and function in investments in emerging markets. So we, we don't invest in Canada, the U.S. Or, or Europe, but we do. You'll see investments from Serona funds in Africa, Asia, Latin America and emerging Europe. It's a bit about the the background. Oh, sorry, I should probably mention what do I do at Serona. So yeah, my sure. My role yeah, as a partner beyond a, beyond being a partner, my day to day is is really focused on operations. I, I act as the chief operating officer at Serona and also the chief compliance officer. Unfortunately, or fortunately, depending on on your perspective, compliance has become a, a much bigger piece of the the business of alternative investment funds like Serona. So we're regulated in in Canada. We're regulated in the United States and we're regulated in Australia for the work that we do. So I, I make sure that our compliance programs are up to the latest guidance from those regulators and uh, we have the appropriate testing and, and, and policies and processes in place. And then beyond that, what really gets me up in the morning is I also am the managing director of impact. And so one of the things that I find very rewarding is working with our, our local financial intermediaries to improve their policies and processes as they relate to impact and ESG and to see a, a movement, a positive movement in that direction across the world. And so that's really interesting because we'll, we'll dive into that a little bit. But one of the things that, so I think there's maybe a couple, there's lots of differentiating factors, but at the highest 10,000 foot view level, 
The fact that, as you said, it's all emerging markets, none of it's happening in developed markets here in the kind of developed West. And that it, I think, is all of your management fund of funds, like you're investing through other funds rather than direct investments. Is that, am I right about that? If not primarily, it's other funds. Is that right? Yeah, I would say that's broadly right. We are we do what's called direct co-investments, okay. which does sound like we're doing direct investments, and we are. But we we what differentiates us from say somebody who has a private equity fund or private debt fund doing direct transactions by themselves is we co-invest alongside our local financial intermediaries. So an example would be we've committed to a particular fund in Colombia. And then they say, hey, we are tapped out. We really want to do this transaction. We're tapped out on the amount we can invest, but they have additional capital available. Would you, Serona, be interested in not only having indirect exposure in the company, but also coming on si- alongside us with a direct investment? Understanding that the local financial intermediary is still leading the transaction is adding the value to those companies, but we would have a direct ownership stake as well as having an indirect ownership stake. Through the, through the private equity funds. So we do those, but our primary corpus of assets is in the fund-to-fund space, investing in other financial intermediaries that are local and are able to provide the appropriate value add that's required for those companies. Yeah, and so the, I guess the thought process there is, listen, these are already you know, intermediaries that we know and trust we've done due diligence on. We already have indirect exposure to these to these underlying companies. And so now they're asking us to essentially add on to top up their direct investment. And so you effectively all that's happening is you're just increasing your exposure to one or one, you know, a handful of those underlying investments. But they're there are already things that you have exposure to. They're already through intermediaries that you know and trust and work with regularly. Is that right? Is that kind of the idea? Yeah, we came to that conclusion. Interestingly, we started so before we started Serona. I was managing, I was an investment manager for, you mentioned a nonprofit like World Vision with another group called Mennonite Economic Development Associates. And their, their mission is to create business solutions to poverty. So for four years, I was in that role and we did do quite a few direct investments, not alongside other funds, but just investing from our ivory tower here in Waterloo, <laughs> making investments in, 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 I would say challenging markets with high impact partners in those local markets. And we learned that some of these companies were quite successful, which is great, but then some that weren't, it was really hard for us to provide them the the type of support that a local manager could. We couldn't just get on a plane right away to to solve a problem. We had to to do everything at a distance. And when we thought about creating uh, Serona, we thought to ourselves, what would be a unique strategy that would lend to our strengths but at the same time be sustainable and, and commercially viable for our investors. And that's why we came up with this idea of being an impact fund to fund focused emerging markets. And at the time, today it's less, at the time it was quite novel. Uh, there were fund to funds in, in, in North America and in Europe, but you didn't see very many focused on emerging markets and certainly none focused on impact in emerging markets. And so, Today, there are quite a lot of examples of others in the market in this space, but at the time of our foundation, it was it was something that was uh, missing in the ecosystem. And, and I think as a strength of that strategy, we felt it was important to empower local teams to do the work. So not only were they closer to their companies, but also we were able to share 
best practices in this industry, something we may have seen in Latin America, could perhaps be applied in Africa, or something we saw in Asia could perhaps influence some of the activities undertaken in emerging Europe. And so our ability to seed best practices from an environmental, social governance and impact, as well as just good business knowledge across our ecosystem, we felt was a way that we could strengthen the investment capacity with local managers that would ultimately benefit these local companies in a bigger way. Yeah. And so that's another maybe key differentiator I should point out here is that when you are talking about financial intermediaries, oftentimes, and maybe, can you unpack that a little bit? When you say financial intermediary, oftentimes these are private equity and private debt funds. Are there any other types of intermediaries you're investing with and through? Yeah, you notice I use, uh, I, I see you're, you're great, you have a great love of language. I think it's very specific terms. That's right. There's a reason for that. Because I, I didn't use general partners right. or you know, right. fund managers. The reason is because we also sometimes work through financial service companies okay. that may not nicely equate general partner in the private equity sense or a fund manager in the, the case of a private debt fund. It may be that we support a regional financial service company that might look a little bit like a fintech or a bank or a microfinance institution. And that would still work in our view, because these institutions tend to operate like in an international space. It's not necessarily specific to a particular sector or or market. And they tend to operate in in a similar way (laughs) that we would expect. Either you're in this country or this country, you'll see some pretty similar, some similarities there. And that's why we, we tend to use the term local financial intermediary simply to, to differentiate between investing in an SME mm-hmm. and investing in someone who allocates capital. And it could be through a private equity fund strategy, private debt strategy, or a financial intermediary strategy. And so for the newer folks who are listening, the SME would be a small, medium enterprise, and that would be a direct for-profit, a small, medium for-profit business or social enterprise operating in, in these countries. And the, and the key factor here is whatever the financial intermediary you're investing with and through, they are local in those environments. And so you're, they are in the, working and operating in those countries, communities, and understand the kind of local challenges and, and impacts rather than allocating to large developed market institutional money managers who are then deploying it across the world. That's the kind of- I would of, say that's generally true. We've learned- There are some exceptions to way, that. We, yeah, there are okay. always going to be. I would say that's generally true, but I think going forward, you'll see us doing much more of that than okay. maybe in our first few years where we were. At some point, you want to support the, the larger, more established players to establish your, your track record. But as you get more knowledgeable about there, you discover that there's some great local talent that you can tap into. And today, I would say we're leaning more towards okay. that pool of opportunities. But we may still do a few regionally or, or maybe even globally based managers that should have some feet on the ground, but may not be headquartered in, in these markets, just uh, as the nature of the, the work that they do. Yeah. And, and as I think about it, it would make sense. I'm curious if this is true. I would guess that part of the constraint, at least part of the constraint might be just capacity issues. If you're raising X million, tens or hundreds of millions of dollars and deploying that, sometimes finding local intermediaries that have the capacity to deploy all of the capital you're raising may sometimes be a challenge or is that not the issue? 
Yeah, it depends on the market, depends on the strategy, and it also depends on um, which part of the ecosystem you're investing in. So a VC fund that has $300 million focusing on Bangladesh mm-hmm. probably wouldn't be a great idea. But that may work in India, right. or it may work in other markets that are have a more sizable ecosystem. Mm-hmm. So a part of our job is I often talk in due diligence about the five P's, the the people, the product, the the process, the pipeline, the the performance, and then the S at the end, people often forget in the in the when you're not focused on impact, for us the S is sustainability and impact. So we look at the five P's in, in every opportunity. And the first question we asked, we had a investment committee meeting this morning on an opportunity, is the team the right fit for the strategy? And is the strategy the product? the right fit for the market. And those are pretty elementary mm-hmm. questions, but they're, I think we need to feel comfortable that we've got a good answer to those two questions. Only after that will we start looking at, okay, tell me about the performance and tell me about the pipeline and the process. But if we don't believe the product works and the people running the product have the right skills to operate that strategy, that usually tells us we, we should be looking somewhere else. That's really interesting that for anybody who's listened to the podcast a lot, they probably heard me mention it a lot. And so some people may be rolling their eyes at this point, hearing it about it over and over. But it, my the time that I spent at Morningstar in, in manager research was to evaluate publicly large institutional managers of you know, public, mutual, primarily mutual funds, sometimes some institutional pension funds and things like that. And our process at Morningstar was a 5P process as well, specifically 5P. So it's people, performance, process, parent, and price. And so some of those directly overlap with what you're with what you're talking about there. So it's interesting to me the kind of similarities and differences. Of course, one of the things that we weren't doing, and this was the time I was there, was the early 2000s through to the early 2010s, not doing anything regarding sustainability and impact. And that's that's been changing <laughs> rapidly. But anyway, it's interesting to me the, to see the parallels between the, the public and private space. And then, of course, in, in the emerging markets and impact space, things things start to get a little different. So I'd love, Serge, could you walk through, I'd love for you to weave, if, if you can do this, maybe too tall in order, but like weave through the a story of like, how did you get involved in this industry, I talk a lot about this, that all of us have usually come through some to impact investing through some other door. We started our career somewhere and ultimately found our way here. I'd love to hear about that story. And through that process, we'll get to the part where you start with Meta and then Serona. And, and if you could tell the story about Meta's fascinating history and Serona's, I'd love you to be able to weave those stories together if you can. <laughs> Sure, sure. I'll do I'll do my best. So we all have our unique little stories about how we got involved in the impact. I guess mine, if, if I'm being honest with you, it probably started after I finished my undergraduate studies. I had done a bachelor in commerce with a specialization in finance at the University of Ottawa mm-hmm. and looking for my first job. And as young professionals, you, you get called into certain interviews and a few people give you some, open some doors. In this case, one of my professors recommended me to a new division that had started at the, I'll just say at one of the big banks, I don't want to necessarily sure. name them, but one of the big banks. And, and this particular division was setting up a uh, defined contribution product for small to medium-sized businesses. We have to remember back that the, the, this dates me a bit, but the, towards you know the beginning of the 2000s, most small to medium-sized businesses, as well as larger businesses had 
defined benefit plans, which today very few, mostly just in the public sector, private sector, it doesn't really exist today. And big banks saw an opportunity to move private sector participants to defined contribution where individuals would contribute towards the retirement, they would get a matching contribution or not from their employers. But then the employers would put up their hands and say, I did what I was supposed to do. I helped you out, but then I don't have any liabilities in the future if the plans don't work out the way they're supposed to. And so uh, clearly this was something very exciting <laughs> to get in and, and, and the big banks hadn't really developed this product. So I was given an opportunity to be on the front, like the, the ground floor of this new concept of a, a small team. And they were looking for a, a number of new people who didn't think like the other bankers did on this opportunity. And so it was a really exciting opportunity. I interviewed and as I was doing the interview, I asked questions more about where do people, I love to run. Where do people run? I was like, well, people run at lunchtime on the street. <laughs> and it was, as you know, Toronto, downtown Toronto is not a, a great running spot, but <laughs> they were explaining that. And I said, well, what sort of, what, what is the, and I was asking questions around what's the impact of what you're trying to do? And maybe a little bit before my time. And the, the fellows, no, we're trying to make money for our clients, the, the businesses. It's about, well, how does this benefit society? Is Well, it's because it's making this easier for them to, you know, to, to save money and reduce their risks. Not always thinking holistically about all the stakeholders involved in that decision. Long story short, I was actually given the job. I was selected for the job and, and, and the employer called me thinking I would accept with open arms. And I turned down the opportunity. Can I ask you, what, what made you even ask those questions? Be frank, I- when I was your agent stage and going through that process, I was not thinking about those things. The reason I was asking those, well, so the background is my father and my mother never worked in the private sector. They worked for public sector entities. You know, they, my mother was a school teacher, yeah. later on a community teacher, and, and later on working in a nonprofit. My, my father worked in Radio-Canada, which is the French equivalent of CBC, all his career. And I knew like that they've depended on those pensions, those defined benefit pension funds. And right. all they taught me throughout my life that you know, I'll be given, they didn't call it white privilege, but they said, you'll be given a lot of opportunities because of your, your upbringing and the fact that you're going to a good university and you're, and you're living your passion. Because I was very passionate about finance, but they asked me questions around the dinner table how are you going to use these sorts of skills to make? And so I, w- I wouldn't say that was really me channeling those questions more than it was my parents trying to, wonderful. To, to teach me about the importance of giving back, not just creating wealth for myself, but giving back in a meaningful way, despite the fact I had chosen to be in the financial sector. And I, and, and I, I must admit, I, most of the questions were related to the job, but when they were asking what questions do you have for us, I was sort of thinking about those things. And, and I think that they liked that I was. But I ultimately turned on the job mostly because I didn't see myself being happy working on the 30th floor of one of these big buildings, making money for for rich people, while not necessarily helping everybody in society with those decisions. Yeah, I guess that was where I stopped. But then, but the, the problem there, David, though, is I didn't have anything else to fall back on. This was what, what this is your first serious job. Yeah. You're given that first opportunity. Again, I'm not going to name the the bank, but the fellow, and I remember this to this day, I remember that conversation because the fellow who had interviewed me started yelling at me, telling oh. me I had just, I had 
made a bad decision and that I was I was essentially killing my future career in in the bank, but also on Bay Street. And that so these opportunities don't come twice. Wow. Um, and at the end of the call, instead of feeling a second guessing myself, thinking, oh, man, I should have maybe I got this one wrong. Solidified I, I myself. My God, I made the right decision. Yeah. Wow. I dodged a bullet if that's how they're reacting to this. Exactly. And but the but then the flip side, I have no other opportunities at, the, right. at that point. So Good for I you. started I started getting a little worried because I had of course student debt and the like to pay off. So what I did after that is I said, I need to find now I know I need to find something that marries my passion for finance and my passion for development and impact. And again, impact didn't exist back then, right? right. Yeah, no. This is just this concept of I need to find a way. This is my mom and my dad around the Amazing. kitchen table telling me you need to use your passion to to make the world a better place. And how I want to go shake their hand. That's such a wonderful yeah. thing they did. <laughs> Parents can be good. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, I speak as a parent, so I don't yeah. know if I'm the yeah. best parent at times. But we're not always, think, but sometimes you know, we get it right. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So in this case, I started looking, there was a program that the Canadian government supported called the Youth Internship Program. I'm not sure if it still exists today, but it was it, it existed back then. And it, what it did, it is connected people under 35 looking for a first opportunity with nonprofits in the world, many of them getting support from what used to be called CEDA, the Canadian International Development Agency. And one of those NGOs, I'm sure World Vision was on that list as well, but <laughs> one of the NGOs was NIDA that was providing a, an internship program and they were providing an internship program for an impact assessment of one of their investments in a, a microfinance institution in, in Romania. Oh, wow. So I applied um, and I got the job, which Amazing. is great. Yeah. And was then sent off to Cluj-Napoca in Transylvania wow. for a year to help this, this up and coming microfinance institution assess whether the work they did had a positive impact on the communities in which they supported. And it was a lot of fun to go through that research and you know, we won't talk about it today because it, it, we'll get into <laughs> a lot of details. But what happened after that is, is I got really excited about working right off of university working on this project and the ceo took a liking to the approach that i took to work and said hey you've done what you were supposed to do much faster than me at hope do you do you want to do some more Amazing. and so i ended up being a special advisor to the ceo and we ended up putting together a business plan for expansion and we looked at opening a, a new office in constanza which is on the black sea coast so i got to travel with my colleagues there and help with the marketing plan and ultimately led to the the opening of a fourth office, a fourth branch of theirs in, in Constanza. Huh. They, they had offices around each of the major regions in, in Romania. And I got to get to know Romania. Uh, and this was post-Soviet, not too far away from when you know Ceausescu was deposed in the 1990s. I was there about 10 years after the fall of the Soviet Union. So there was still a lot of things that hadn't yet been fully solved. And it was great to be there to support them and their plans for expansion and to see the work that they did. What really touched my heart, I remember again to this day, even though it was a while ago, that every morning we would, this Mita is connected to the Mennonite church, which is a, well, it's not connected to the Mennonite church, but it's connected to the Mennonite community. And they do support Christian-led organizations in some of these. And not every investment would fit that category, but this one had a policy to, to pray every day at the beginning of each day. And although I'm not, I won't paint myself as overly religious, 
I appreciated the humanity of having that moment and praying for the success of the clients and, and, and then talking about a story that touched somebody the previous day that they saw in the real world. And mm-hmm. it just energized all of us. We need to do like we just got up we did after that prayer and that that conversation about a client and we worked harder to help those clients out. And then it, it, re- it reinforced my decision. I made the right call yeah. on um, not working on Bay Street, at least in really focusing on on my passion to help. I, I don't want to digress too much into this, but I think it's just it was an interesting learning that I had through the work at World Vision, which is a faith-based organization. I would probably describe myself in a similar camp to you. I identify as Christian, but not superly and overtly religious. But one of the things that came out through that learning experience was the role that having an understanding of the importance of faith, whatever that faith is, whether that's Islam or Judaism, Buddhism, whatever that is, that the, the role that faith plays for the vast majority of people on the planet is an important consideration that to be mindful of that and aware of that and how that can help actually connect with and and help communities that, that need that help was an interesting kind of lesson then and something that I probably didn't appreciate before having experience with that. I'm curious if that, again, I don't want to digress down this, this path too much, but I'm curious if that kind of resonates with you at all. It does. And I think for me, the way I look at it is the, the humanist nature of this. Ultimately, you don't That's have right. to be religious to be able to help your your neighbor right. or help someone in your community. But it certainly channels that, and if it's done in the right way, not in a overly religious way, but more about we are on this planet to help others and to make the world a slightly better place That's right. than we found it, and that we are all connected somehow. It can really channel people's good intentions. We're inherently social and we're inherently yeah. good, yeah. but sometimes because of the structures that we're in, we are led down the wrong path. And I, I think what this taught me, at least with Kappa Romania, was that despite the fact this was not an evangelical microfinance institution, right. it was just about channeling the inner good in the people who work there to, yes, the organization needed to make profits at the end of the month and, and needed to do things well. But ultimately, why were they there? They were there to help entrepreneurs in Romania succeed. And, and that faith helped with that mission. So this was, for me, it was an example of how not only finance can be a force for good, but when done well, faith can be a, a force for community benefit as yeah, well. Yeah, you, you explained, you, I think, described that really well. Like, of course, and this is, I think, the common misperception when you say faith can play a role is, of course, you don't have to, to, to practice any faith to be empathy, empathetic and caring and understanding and to help people. But I think if you are, don't come from a faith background of any sort, just to be respectful and understanding of the role that faith plays for others in this world and not be dismissive of it, to actually consider that through the process, I think is an important aspect, which sometimes can be missed, not always. But anyway, it was something that I personally didn't appreciate as much as I probably um, should have. So it was a lesson. Anyway, so we've gotten you new, know, you've had this now first experience. Where do you go from there? Yeah, unfortunately, so I was offered, interestingly, I was offered a continuation. So the first year that was paid for in part by Mita, mostly by the Canadian government. But after that year, the, the CEO, his name was Andy, said, I would like to extend that, whatever you were paid, I will pay you if you stay another year, because I think you've really helped us in this regard. So would you like to stay for an extra year and then we'll work it out after that? 
And I said, I said, I said, no, mostly not because I didn't like Copper Romania and not because I didn't think my work was highly interesting, but mostly I had to pay student loans back. And, and just to give you some context, I think I was getting paid like 1500 Canadian a month, which, you know, for Romania was good. That was, you know, that's what the middle managers were getting paid. At. But at the time that just wouldn't, I, I just couldn't pay my student bills and live in Romania. So uh, I said, listen, let's keep in touch, but I have to go back to Canada to pay my student bills. <laughs> so I went back and actually I found another organization that was somewhere in between those two extremes, which was Export Development Canada. So I was offered a, a position with with them to help Canadian exporters that wanted. So it was an organization that is is essentially created to support Canadian small businesses as well as large businesses, but really SMEs to find new markets, to expand into new markets and to really provide them with a lot of, and so it wasn't a big bank and it wasn't a microfinance institution. It was somewhere in between those two. It did have a social mission in a way, which I adhered to, and it connected me to international markets, which was important after my experience in Romania. So I did that for three and a half, four years, started in the loan servicing department, which is maybe why I'm so anal about contracts and processes, because that department is, it's all about making sure those 500 page legal documents are followed and, and no one's breaking the rules. And so I got my passion for uh, detail negotiations from that experience. And then I was moved to the front office on the underwriting team for accounts receivable insurance, and then got to work with over 200 Canadian companies, mostly in Quebec and in, in the Atlantic provinces, focused on the forestry sector. So everything from making lumber to making products out of wood. And I really learned the importance of, I learned a lot in that experience, both on the procedures, but also on the, the importance of being client focused, understanding the client, negotiating equitably, fairly, and in the client's best interests, and ultimately making sure the clients stay with you through throughout, throughout that process. But I always had that inclination. There's always that seed that had been planted in, in Romania that I could use my skills to, to make the world a little bit better. And to the surprise of my colleagues and my at EDC, I said, I need to do this. It's really important to me after five years. And, but I knew I was missing some vital skills. And so I decided to do a, a master's in the UK first and an international MBA in Canada next to be able to, to fill in the gaps, the knowledge gaps that I knew were going to be important for a career in impact investing. And you uh, pretty so, much did those back to back, didn't you? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I got, I was a bit lucky. I, I there is a, a lady and a man who never had children. I don't, I'm pretty sure about the story. I might've gotten wrong, but Baxter and Alma, I don't think, I don't think they had children, but they really, they, their children, I think were the community. And so they passed, they essentially set up like the cable network in Northern Ontario. And that was eventually sold to, to Rogers, but then they made a lot of money in the sale. And, and then they passed away. And instead of giving it to their family, they set up a permanent, a permanent foundation, which had a very unique strategy, which was to help Franco Canadians outside of Quebec to go to leading universities and schools. And then to use those skills to make the world a better place. Wow. Wow. That's a very, very like, specific. Yeah, yeah. Very specific and very ahead of its time in a lot of ways. Yeah. Like. In a way you're right. And, and so I applied, it's a pretty competitive process, but I applied for, for that funding and it's, and it gives you three years, we're up to three years of funding. Wow. 
And there's, a, I think, a cap. I don't know. I'm trying to remember all of this stuff as I'm talking to you. I think it was like 35000 Canadian a year or something. But that was for, oh. for the cost of the school, room board, and everything else. And so I, I applied. I, I got in. I got this grant. And then it didn't cover all of the costs, but it covered a pretty big chunk of it. And, and it gave me the ability to go back to school and, and get those skills that I required so that I could be more effective in the impact investment space. So I did that and to get back, how did I get back into the industry? While I was doing my international MBA, well, two things happened. I did my master's in finance and accounting at the London School of Economics, and I had to do a master's dissertation. And I decided to do one entitled, do social missions at microfinance institutions help or hinder the social impact. So that was a question, big question. And then I, I picked Mita as one of the case studies and another group called Shore Bank International as the other case study and interviewed Gerhard Priest, who's at Mita at the time. He's the CEO at Serona today. And we started a relationship as part of that process. Huh. And when I went back to Canada to my international MBA, I was asked to do uh, a work term abroad to get I wanted to get a non-profit management and leadership master's certificate, and I had to do a, a work term to, to graduate with my MBA, and I needed to do a work term in, in a social enterprise or nonprofit to get that certificate. So mm -hmm. I reached out to Gerhard and I said, crazy idea. Would you have any, I did this stuff with Capa Romania and, you know, call Andy, he'll tell you about what I did back then. I'm older, I'm not necessarily wiser, but, you know, at least what I did back then, do you think that you have any other companies in your portfolio that you might be interested in? getting that sort of support. So he said, well, we've got this new company out in Nicaragua that we invested back in 2003 in their second year of operations. And yeah, similar to Capo Romania, they need a little bit of help. Would you be interested in helping us out with this? So I created my internship by making those connections. And then I work with Fred Wall, who is what is it was a media member or media board member, I think at the time as well, who was the chairperson at Micredito. He's a fellow from Winnipeg and very, very focused on the mission of Micredito, but also a very hard nosed business person. Mm -hmm. and, and I learned a lot through him sure. because he's, you know what, if you run a business well, it will have social impact by default because mm -hmm. you'll be creating jobs, you'll be a better community, but you have to run the business well. So he drove me and, and and Veronica was the CFO at the time and Octavio who was a CEO crazy at times because he was so focused on creating good results even for a startup but he kept us honest and focused on the task at hand and I had a wonderful summer working with Micredito building a business plan building a financing plan for their growth and helping Octavio and Veronica who were the founders of the institution with helping them achieve their dream which is to create a Central American microfinance institutions helping rural entrepreneurs. And after that experience, Gerhard said, well, you know, I'm CFO at Mita and I'm in charge of investments and I need some help. Would you be willing to, to work part-time the first term when you come back as a two-year program? And I said, yeah, I'd love to. And at the time, my wife, who was working at Project Plowshares in Waterloo, and I had bought a house in Waterloo, so it made sense to do a bit of part-time work while I was finishing up my studies. And then he said in January, just the last term of my graduate studies said, I've discovered because you're working part time with me, I discovered I need somebody full time for this job. And I said, oh, that's great, Garrett. I'd love to be considered for that. I'll be ready for a full time job in May. And he said, no, I need Can't someone wait. in January. <laughs>
<laughs> so you started <laughs> and, and you're okay. you going to school it, and fine. I'll find someone else, but I do need someone in January. So I said, no, I'll make it work. Awesome. Most stressful period of my life, probably I'm trying to finish a, an international MBA while working uh, 40 hours a week, Wow! but somehow made it happen. And the rest, as we say, is history because then was offered the job of investment manager at Mita, did that for four years, was a wonderful experience. And then Gerhard and I decided to start a new company, which initially was wholly owned by Mita, but to have a separate company allowing us to then raise pulled investment funds from private investors which led uh, to the creation of Serona. Yeah. So let's unpack a little bit of the, the Meta story and then the Serona, the, you know, specifically like talking about some of the, you know, things that we talked to you about when I was at your office with all those years back now, picking your brain on, on how you went through that process of separating Serona from starting Serona at wholly owned by Meta and then eventually separating it entirely. Yeah, so maybe I'll, I'll start with the story of Mita. Origin stories of companies can be quite interesting if 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 there is an interesting story to be told, and mm-hmm. I think there is an interesting one here. Back in Mita, which is today a nonprofit, fairly large organization with operations in dozens of countries in, in the emerging world, started off and looked a lot more like Serona back in 1953. It was founded by seven North American Mennonite business people who went down to the Chaco region in Paraguay, which is a, a, a piece of jungle in, in the country of Paraguay in Southern America. And why they were there to find a creative ways of helping Mennonite refugees that had escaped the Second World War and had relocated in Latin America. Paraguay was the only country willing to take them on, but they're good farmers. They wanted to put them in very difficult areas yeah. so that they could turn this jungle potentially farmland. These Mennonite refugees mostly came from from the former Soviet Union, Ukraine in particular, the uh, Crimea area, which is now part of Russia, but used to be part of Ukraine. And uh, they were very good business people and farmers back there. This was a very challenging environment for them. When those Mennonite business people went down to see what they could do to help, they were thinking they would go back to their churches and communities to raise donations to, to provide them with the capital that they required. These Mennonite refugees, despite the fact they were quite destitute at this point, took did not take kindly to those donation requests. They said, listen, we want to be treated as equals. We know we're down on our luck, but we used to be successful business people. We mm. want your support, but we want it, we want to be treated as equals. So what we will accept is not a donation, but a loan and your expertise in helping us develop these business ideas that we have for the region. Wow. So the local community saw an opportunity to set up a dairy uh, production facility and said, why don't we start with that and then we'll move from there. And so they got a loan. They set up the dairy production facility. They brought some high performing dairy cows from North America into Paraguay to help with that investment. And the business grew from there. And so they started with dairy. Then they went into higher value production of butter and, and other dairy products. They, be, they added a tannery and then they started producing leather goods, belts and shoes and the like. And, this, and they trained a number of local people as well as the local community to develop these. And North Americans came in and provided not just the capital, but the expertise. Today, the business no longer operates. It's been quite a while. But the people who were trained went on to create their own dairy production facilities and, and businesses. And today, about 70% of the dairy sector in Paraguay can be linked back to people who had received training or worked at 
the this plant and this plant was called the serona dairies which is where we get our name so the first act of Mida was to support and seed the serona dairies we are a reincarnation of that idea of that ideal in the work that we do that we started doing in 2010 as, as a, a newly created fledging idea really this gerhard and i and a, a part-time office manager <laughs> at the time and today we've we've grown to a team of 15 managing about 430 million odd dollars in these pulled investment funds across emerging markets that must be one of the my very favorite name stories like the the origin of a name of a company where did it come from it's just so fitting it could you couldn't have chosen a like a better story yeah and what's interesting is we were able even though the dairy farm no longer exists remnants of the dairy farm are there wow. and gerhard had some con or actually hilda which is gerhard's wife had some contacts in in, in paraguay and were able to identify or find one of the original farm gates. These wow. were built in the 1950s and 60s. They are heavy <laughs> steel and they're built to last decades, yep. if not centuries. And so we were able to take one of those farm gates, get it into a container, took three months, ship it over to Canada. And as a surprise to Gerhard, we had it installed in the office. So this was our old office on, on, on Victoria. And, uh, and it hung dangerously above a few of the uh, investment analysts' desk. And he was so he was so surprised to see that farm gate. But he tells that story, so right? Cool. It's a real, this is real. This is not a, it's not just a story. This company yeah. existed and it, it started as a seed and grew into a beautiful tree and helped an entire ecosystem create impact for generations. And, and that reminds us about the importance of symbols and stories that can inform, coming back to the, the story about the morning prayer at Kappa really informed in, in, in how we were going to treat the cu customers that day. And that farm gate tells us why we're here, why we come into the office every day, and the type of role that Sonora can play in developing the impact investment industry. Yeah, that's that's so powerful. I, one of the things just you know, personally that I've grown a better appreciation for, because I, I think sometimes certain traditions can hold us back from progress and from change, but also though the flip side is that certain tradition and ritual there's a lot of value to be to be had in that and so the ritual of prayer or the ritual of you know bringing back this piece of of physical evidence of the story and, and looking at it every day and seeing that in front of you making you be mindful and remember the that this is not just a story like the importance of that and the value of that um, is something that i've probably underestimated through my life and i'm growing a, a greater appreciation for so i love that you're touching on some of that can you talk a little bit about then the process by which, because Meta was, became a nonprofit and has a long history of doing really great work in that space, how the decision came about and then the process for starting Serona as a separate organization. I think there are a lot of listeners to the podcast who do come from the charitable and nonprofit space and might be interested in that, that side of it. Yeah, it was quite the voyage. I, I will be honest with you, David. One of the things we came, we've always, Gerhard and I had these conversations around, wouldn't it be great? Because we, we were making some very interesting social investments. So we always thought, wouldn't it be great if we created a product in which the general population could, or at least a subset of that population could invest in? And uh, it was a great idea in theory, but then required a lot of planning. And so one of the things we did uncover is we could have decided to structure these funds within Mita, say, let's just keep working within Mita. 
But when you go, and Mita does a great job, by the way, they're excellent at what they do. But when you go on the Mita website, they say donate for Afghan farmers who are uh, down under their lock or require support in, in their capacity building. And so for investors, they say, are you taking my money and investing in that? Or are you taking my money and donating it away? So it got very confusing for them. And so we thought without necessarily rupturing the relationship with me, because we think it's very powerful, it'd be not possible to separate the brands a bit to say Sorona is connected to the Mita brand, but it's not the same as the Mita brand. And that we could have that bridge yet at the same time be on one end of the, if you look at the Golden Gate Bridge, you've got the, you've got San Francisco on one end and then you've got the rest of the, I guess if you keep going, it's the, the wine country <laughs> at close to San Francisco, but you've got two, two sides of that bridge. So we're still, we're, we still have that bridge, but we, we can start a new life on the other side That's right. while still being connected to our history. And, uh, and this was the way we thought would be best is we kept that bridge. We, we kept that story, but we, we were different in the market and it, it worked well. People thought, saw the value of what we did and appreciated that we weren't necessarily in the Meta platform directly, but we were influenced by the work of Meta. And that was what we did, we had come to you about we referenced at the top of this discussion. You gave really valuable feedback as we wrestled that world vision with that confusing message of a charity going to investors and saying, hey, we have an investment opportunity for you. And trying to do that through the brand narrative of a charity is difficult. And so in our case, we we're creating a distinct brand origin capital around that to try to disrupt that, help c- provide a cleaner slate to be able to have a conversation with, with an investor that, that didn't automatically end up in a confused question at the end. So are you looking for a donation? I don't understand. This is World Vision. It sounds like you you bumped up against the same thing. And then by separating, creating a new entity, Serona, with a new brand, a new narrative, it, it allowed you to clarify that for your investors. Yeah, I, I agree. And But I also remind in terms of making sure we get the right history is that when we did that, we were still a wholly owned subsidiary of right. Mita. So we were like indirect employees of Mita. We just right. had two different brands. That's right. We set up our first office just to, to, but we did want to have a bit of a distinction. We set up our first office right across the street from the Mita offices in Waterloo. So yeah. we're, we just had to get out of our office, walk across the street, and we were in their offices essentially. But we wanted to create a bit of a distance in order to separate the brands, but also separate the the cultures in a way and ensure we were focused on the investment side. Mita was focused on the economic development side, but we often work hand in hand, but as separate entities. What changed though is yeah, that kind of worked for a couple of years. What we noticed is we were trying to bring, as we were having success on the fundraising front, we saw an opportunity to build out our team. And to build out the team, you need entrepreneurially minded people to join and entrepreneurially minded people are looking for a stake in firms. Mm-hmm. And so we weren't owners, like we, we were getting paid for the work that we did, but we weren't shareholders in Serona at the initial stages. Right. But as we started having conversation, uh, having the ability to provide shareholding in the firm would prove to be important for our growth. And so we had long conversations <laughs> with the Meta board, the Meta management team about the importance of letting us go in a way, not necessarily let us go completely, but letting us go to some degree in order for us to be 
the best that we could be. Lengthen that leash, them. allow you, give you more freedom, more distance, not without letting go, as you say, but giving you more of that freedom to be able to pursue those angles. Correct. And at the time, it was it was a good, long debate. It took a long time. And there were camps between those willing to let us go and those wanting to keep us close. And in the end, uh, we came up with an arrangement that worked for everyone. And it was approved unanimously, which was to sell 90% of the company to the operators, the people involved in the day-to-day management. Mm -hmm. And then there would be a a 10% non-dilutable portion, which would always be owned by Mita. And Mita would own the trademark for Sirona. And so we can't go out and launch a Sirona cigarette fund. (laughs) We can only be involved in impact, which is exactly what we wanted. That was alignment Mm -hmm. with us because, you know, we, I'm still relatively young to some degree compared to maybe Gerhard, who's thinking about potentially retirement in the next um, decade or so. But for him, it's about he may not be there, but he wants to make sure Serona doesn't forget where it came from as we change in terms of the, the composition of the shareholders and the teams. This worked us worked out very well for us to advise Mita on its investments. So there was a connection there. We continue to work on business proposals, of which there are many working together. So we're stronger together. But in some ways, our relationships strengthen when we had that separation, that clear separation. And I and Paulus, who are the shareholders of the firm right now, we're very proud. Uh, we, that's where we started, and we're doing an about face in a way. Last year, so Mita continues to own 10%. Last year, Gerhard, Paulus, and I agreed to donate 10% of the shares in Serona into a other company called CSOP, in which those shares are owned by everyone else who aren't the founders or the partners. Mm-hmm. And, and we saw that as a really important on our part because we wanted to make sure that we all worked together as shareholders. So meet as a shareholder, they want us to succeed. We as partners clearly want us to succeed. We're shareholders. And every employee at Serona that's been with us for three years gets a share of Serona so that they're also shareholders in the company. And so we're all working together as shareholders, as board members, as employees, and as members of the community. Every day living up to the expectations of that farm gate on the wall yes of why we're there and why we're together and why we're what we're working towards yeah i love it there's some indirect stuff here i won't there's a lot of directions i go with this but one of the things that strikes me is you it's in, intentional but maybe a, a, as certainly ahead of its time we had an episode of this podcast talking about alternative kind of stewardship ownership models and this idea of remember the technical term for it but where you essentially can separate legally the ownership of the the mission and the values of an organization from the economic interest in the business and so that effectively what you're trying to do is protect the you can't the owners of the the, the majority stock owners of the financial in, interest in the business can't change the mission of the business as you have kind of successive rounds of raising funds and taking in new shareholders and effectively it sounds like that's what made is done by protecting a the the brand we own the the right of the for this brand and we've got this non-dilutable 10% interest where we can't be you know, diluted away or, or ousted. And it makes sure that you stay true to that mission over time and not that you've strayed from it, but it just, as the original founders think about moving on, you do have to think about what happens long after I'm gone and how does this continue to exist in a way that stays true to what, what we had intended. Yeah, I would add, in addition to all of that, we decided early on back in 2011, I think we were the fifth B corporation in Canada. 
and decided to change our articles of incorporation to include language around our, our purpose is not only to protect shareholder interests, but also to protect stakeholder interests in the work that we do. And uh, that's another way to control the future direction of the organization. You've got the trademark, they can't use the Serona funds, but but somebody could come and say, okay, we're going to give her the Serona and we're going to call ourselves, I don't know, the Sun Capital, whatever it may be. And then you forget about that, but you'd have to then go into the articles of incorporation and also make changes there as well as changing the culture at Serona. So those things are, these are the cornerstones, the culture the history, our articles of incorporation, and it's a foundation on which we build our future direction. Yeah, that's awesome. Very quickly, because I want to ask about the funds and all that. And I'm just going to pause here for one sec, Serge. Are you, do you have a hard stop at one? Do we have a few minutes to go past? Yeah, I have an internal call, but I can push it back. Can you give me 10, mi- 10 extra minutes? Yeah, for sure. Does that work? Okay. Because I, I want to make sure we get enough time to the talk about the current work you're doing and some of the funds and, and all that. And I think we can maybe just touch on CAFED. We, we won't have time to go into it as much as I otherwise would have, but maybe we'll, we can potentially even have a separate podcast sometime. You know what? That. If you give me a sec, and I'm just going to check. Yeah, Adam's free at 1.30, so I'm going to push it back to 1.30. So okay, sure. That would be awesome, because I'd love yeah. to talk about CAFED if you're up for it. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, awesome. I'm just making a note of the time this uh, break happened, so I can... Uh, where are we at in terms of time? 58 minutes. Okay. So I'd love to ask you, Serge, about the, do you think, I found that the whole transition of from, and I talk about this because I think it is important for those charities and nonprofits that are looking to the impact investment space as a, as an opportunity, which I think that it is. But I also, when I speak to people about this and in my experiences, I would say, don't underestimate the challenges and difficulties that it's not simple. It can be done and you should you know explore it if that's, if it seems like a good opportunity for you, but also don't underestimate the challenges. Do you think that, in the case of Meta, given its origin as a for-profit approaches and the fact that the entire nonprofit works towards economic development and supporting businesses, these small businesses and small medium enterprises, does it, do you think that made the organization more understanding and the idea of spinning out a for-profit impact fund of funds, they were more amenable to it because of that? Not to say that it was easy, but just that it gave you a bit of a foothold for those kind of a common understanding of what the opportunity might be. Yeah, I, th- I think so. Also, I'll, I'll be honest with you, the board members are comprised of media members, many of which are business people in their own. And so they're in the business, like they have their, you know, charity, I'm on a board hat. And then the day to day, they're like running businesses and they're right. spinning up businesses, <laughs> acquiring businesses on the side. And, and so they totally understood what we were proposing. So that are already helps. Whereas I think some boards of some nonprofits tend to, I'm not, I want to be careful here because sure. I think they have a lot of value, but they may not have that life experience. And so for them, it's particularly in a government setting, it's a hold it, it's a failure if you can't hold it tight and, and control it. Whereas in the business world, sometimes the best thing you can do is set it free. And that's why conglomerates have less value than companies who are more focused on certain parts of, of the economy who can then be given the resources that are they're required to, to truly grow and, and strive. And, and, and there were a lot of, it also helped that Mita has been doing impact investing since day one, even though they're, right. they're a nonprofit and charity, they have a portfolio of social investments that they've successfully managed over decades. 
and also lessons learned. Not every investment is successful. Right. And so they understood that part of the problem is if, if you hug these companies too tightly and don't let them go free, they could potentially um, die in the vine. And sometimes the best thing you can do is to get out of the way of, of people who are really focused on developing a particular business idea to its fullest while continuing to influence it. It is not, Mita is still there. They are, I have calls with Mita almost every day because we're, we have a tight relationship, but I think our relationship is stronger because of the fact that we're separate companies and we trust each other and we talk to each other and we help each other out as opposed to being too tightly wound. And mm -hmm. so my recommendation, and then we spoke about this, is the importance of allowing nonprofits to find creative ways of continuing the influence while not killing the golden goose, allowing the entrepreneurial spirit to occur while also trying to influence it to go in the right direction. And that ends up helping both organizations have a more profound impact on the ecosystem. Yeah, that this actually provides a really great segue into talking more. Let's dive into a little bit more Serona and the work you're all doing. One of the things I want to talk about is the ways in which you you do work with with Meta even to this day. And as I understand it, it wouldn't be uncommon that you might collaborate with Meta around technical assistance and supporting a number of the investments that you're making. Is that right? And can you maybe unpack that a little bit? Yeah. So we've over the years we have partnered on two programs supported by Global Affairs Canada. Perhaps there's some disagreements on whether this is the first truly blended finance program GAC has ever supported. We have evidence to show that it, it is. There's been blended finance components in certain programs, but a, a fully dedicated blended finance program, probably the first one they did was, was back in 2013, a program called Infront, which was sponsored by Meta and Serona was the sub awardee in this case, because we can't take money directly from Global First Canada. Right. And we're able to test out the, the elements of blended finance in a way that today has informed what's possible uh, in terms of first loss, return enhancement, technical assistance, as well as guarantees and support from governments in this space. And then on the back of the success of that program, a, a second program was awarded called Trading Up. Again, same idea, Global First Canada funded it, Mita is the, the prime recipient, and then we're a sub-advisor to the program, building out those two ecosystems. And then maybe as a result of that, the U.S. government got a bit jealous about what we we're doing here. So they've been taking elements of that in, in, in the U.S. as through USAID and through some of their partners, as well as DFC, the, the U.S. Government Development Finance Institution. And then the Australian government wanted to do something like this as well. So they put out a global call for proposals in which Serona... Mita and another group called Volta out of the UK partnered as a consortium and were awarded that that mandate back in, in well, we were awarded the mandate in uh, towards the end of 2018, early 2019. But by the time all the contracts were signed, everything was ready to go, started in, in July of 2020. So you can see how these are three very valid examples of how Serona by itself could not have won these mandates mm -hmm. and Mita by itself could not have won these mandates. But yet working together, we're able to develop some really creative, in some ways, earth shattering programs that have been influenced 
how governments do development. We're very small and I think we're very humble in some way. Mita so much more so perhaps than Serona, but but I think Mita has done some amazing creative things that has led to some changes in the way that we we do development and have influenced others in the space to do the same. Yeah, and you've, you're touching on all sorts of topics from other episodes, which is great. So for anybody listening who's you hasn't listened to episode 18 with Joan Larea from uh, Convergence Blended Finance. You can listen to that episode to get up to speed on, on a number of the terms that, that Serge was dropping there around the, the blended finance arrangement there with Global Affairs Canada. So you, I think you mentioned it just earlier in passing. How big is Serona in terms of assets under management right now? Or under yeah under advisement or management? What do you use the term? What term well, you it's it's assets under management. Although we do have an advisor relationship with Mita, so technically okay. it's assets under advisement because we don't manage their That's money. Right. We advise, but we advise them quite a bit. But it's they make the decisions whether to invest or not to invest. But everything else we we can we would control. So of that we would have it's three hundred twenty five million US. So it depends on the exchange rate yeah. in terms of converting into the Canadian <laughs> fund. But I, I think I mentioned four hundred twenty million yeah. to thirty million. But you can do you can Google <laughs> uh, the latest exchange rates and, and convert it to Canadian funds. But we are growing. We we started with the the Meta mandate, which at the time was about fifteen million US back in 2010 and since then we've had three private equity fund of funds one one first pilot friends and family round and then an institutional private equity fund of fund with an impact orientation in 2013 and we, we raised our second institutional private equity fund in 2019 with the final close in, in early 2021 and then on the back of the Serona trade finance fund pilot we were able to to launch a commercial fund to investors in very late 2020 so that just we've just done our sixth month of operation there on that one and then emif started in in july 2020 and we just we're about to commit our first investment in that mandate this month and we're looking at two other opportunities in the second half of this year okay yeah it's pretty exciting it's been a quite a wild ride and one question you haven't asked that i'll answer anyways yeah please political sense is being an entrepreneur and i think alluded to that it's it is it's a lot of work getting these things off the ground with or without the connection with world vision or, or or media just getting a fund manager off the ground requires a lot of nerves of steel and some unintelligent optimism about the future <laughs> yeah. where we're just around the corner we'll yeah. get this we'll get this fund off the ground and what we've discovered is that you need you need to, to believe in yourself in your business model but you also need at some point there, there will be times where it's darkest there's a reason the expression it's darkest before dawn right there are, there are times where we weren't sure how we we're going to make payroll and so gerhard and i had to go into a home equity line of credit and pull in mm. twenty thousand thirty thousand dollars to put into the company to, to make payroll staff was paid on time as agreed as per their contracts it's a true entrepreneur mm-hmm. and that's stressful mm-hmm. having those conversations with your spouses we're going to put more money, good money after bad into this business. Please come along for the ride. And uh, there's no guarantees that we will get repaid. Yeah, I described yeah. that, you know, as, as my experience with, with, with Kind Wealth and having those conversations as a social entrepreneur with my wife, like your, for your spouse particularly, it's really challenging because you as the person going through it, you see fully what your vision is and what the opportunity is and how close you feel like you are to it. For your spouse, they've got to just take hold their breath and take a leap of faith with you that you know what you're doing and that, that you digging into your family's finances to go that route. I, I In my mind, what I imagine is we're maybe snorkeling or, or about to go, we're snorkeling and, and saying, hey, we got to 
just on the other, we're going to go under and we got to go through this little underground kind of pass underwater passage. And I want you to hold your breath and come with me. And I'm, I'm sure we can get to the other side. I've done it before. And they're like, Oh boy, are you sure we're going to get through? And yeah, trust me, I think we can get to the other side, but they have to just ultimately take hold their breath and take a leap of faith with you. And it can test, it can test a marriage and understandably for your spouse, it must be really challenging, but wow. Yeah. I didn't know yeah, that about I, your history with the uh, Serona. Yeah, well, I'll be honest with you. Yeah, it, it, it certainly isn't easy. And particularly when, hey, we had plans to go on a trip or we had plans to renovate the kitchen. Yeah. And we're going to put those plans on hold to put money into a business that's losing money. And <laughs> yeah, those aren't easy conversations. But there is, like everything else in life, one has to build, like not just with your spouse, but in general, one has to build relationships of trust where honesty and integrity are, are, are cornerstones of those relationships. And I, 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 Jessica's not here to defend herself. So she would probably say all this stuff is BS. But I think we have an understanding around yeah. that if it's really important and, in, in, and there's a plan that, yeah, you're right. That's a good example. We're going to, we're going to snorkel together and there is, we're going to, we're going to get to the other side and it's going to be okay. Yeah. And it isn't always okay, but That's sometimes right. that leap of faith is, is, is also, it, it, yeah, it isn't an individual decision. It's That's often right. a family decision. hundred percent. Thank you. Thank you. Jessica West, my wife, yeah. actually, if you like podcasts, she do a little, she's yeah. a space security experts and does some really interesting uh, talks on that topic. She's it's a space security anymore. expert. Yeah. What does that mean? Well, she focuses, well, she's trying through her work at Project Plowshares to not weaponize the outer space, that it becomes available for space exploration or for the use of satellites in a way that lead to having weapons out there. And unfortunately, I'm not sure if it's a worthwhile goal. Military, U.S., Chinese, and Russian militaries may have a different view of the role of outer space, and she's doing her best to at least delay or reduce that risk. Oh, I would love to talk to your wife. That would be fascinating <laughs> to hear. I'm, I'm fascinated with space and, and astronomy in general, and so I would love to talk to your wife about that stuff. Probably not relevant to this podcast topic, but boy, that's really cool. So, Serge, just to recap, how many funds have you launched and raised and, and closed? You, you mentioned a, a number of, I was just trying to keep track in my mind. Is it three, four, five now? So there's four pulled investment funds. So three in the private equity space, one in the private debt space. Okay. And then we have two, what we call separately managed accounts. One is the, we continue to advise Mita on its investments. That would be one. Okay. And the other one is the Australian government, the Emerging Markets Impact Investment Fund. Okay. That we, we te- technically are the investment manager, but the way it is structured is it is structured as a separately managed account because it's just their money that we're right. pulling into the strategy that they want us to deploy. But we are possibly considering launching our next generation private equity fund of fund in 2022. And we're also exploring a, a private debt offering, uh, a, a different one from the current one we have uh, on offer. Okay, awesome. I would love to, to hear a little bit more about that if you're able to talk. But let's, so for those listening, a pooled f- fund in the case of where you're pooling a bunch of different assets from different investors into typically a closed end fund, it can be, you can take those assets and invest in private equity or private debt versus the SMAs or separately managed accounts is where you're managing the assets of one particular organization, individual, in this case, these are organizations separately from the others. And that's kind of, I'm just trying to break down the terminology. Yep. I usually try to, is that's the basic idea. Yes, you've got okay. it right. And so three of them, you said were private equity and one's private debt. Can you, just as an example, can you give an, an example of the types of a, maybe funds that you might invest through. I know Lululand is an example of a South African fund, I believe, that you would invest 
in, and then maybe if you could give an example of maybe one of the underlying, that's a, a, a typical example of an underlying investment that those funds might be investing in, just so the listeners got a real clear idea of, hey, when I invest through Serona, here's where the money goes. Sure, sure. So on the private equity side, an example that comes to mind is a group called Mekong Capital out of Vietnam. And okay. so they're focused, they're just Vietnam, they just do Vietnam, but they focus on, I would say, consumer-related business models. So they, they've done a, a lot of learnings along the way they started with. They thought maybe Vietnam could be the next export manufacturing hub after China. So they invested heavily in that, their first fund. They discovered that didn't work out quite as well. But what did work out was the, the retail facing businesses. So the indigenous, the next Best Buy, for example, for Vietnam, it's not Best Buy, but it's a local indigenous brand that they've developed. And what's exciting about their business model is they typically invest with very promising entrepreneurs that have three, four, five, six retail outlets. And then they figure out what works, what doesn't. They usually bring in an expert from Europe or the US or Canada to help develop the, the systems and the processes that a group that might have a hundred outlets like this might need. It's less about telling them this is how it should be done in Vietnam. It's more about it, it, I, I know this business and I know it's really hard to scale up to a hundred, but if you're going to do it, you're going to have to have these things in place. How the market works, that's your business. Mm -hmm. But I could just tell you how you can scale up efficiently to make this uh, a model that, that, that works. And so they've done that numerous times. And it's a, and, and what I love about this is that the, the business creates enormous amount of local wealth because these are local managers building out local, creating lots of jobs, but they have a high impact orientation as well. They're, make, they're trying to make money for investors. Let me get that straight. But they also have a love for creating highly impactful business and making sure that the businesses focus on growth, but not growth at any cost. They just became a B Corp, by the way. Oh, wow. our, sorry, I shouldn't say that out loud because they are still finishing up the process. They finished out the, the surveying. They have right. to do the audit now. So I, I should, but that's, maybe we'll have to be a bit careful in that one because it's not public information yet, but they're- Do you want, I can remove this in post? Sure. Okay, I'll so figure- will be an example of companies. Yeah. So one of the companies in our portfolio in Mekong 3, uh, which I had the, the pleasure of visiting a few times is called PharmaCity which is a pharmaceutical chain. It's a little bit like for Canadians, Shoppers Drug Mart, but it, when it started, it was just five or six branches. You'll have to understand, for those of you who have traveled in emerging and frontier markets, pharmacies exist there as much as they do here. They're generally mom and pop shops, and they generally don't have the quality of policies and processes to ensure that the pharmaceutical products that they deliver to you are safe, aren't expired, and are well suited for your ailment. What value a retail chain like this brings is a certain bill of rights for consumers, making sure that the products are appropriately suggested for particular ailments, but also that the products are appropriately sourced and they're not expired to, to not put the patient's health at risk. And so they that's the cornerstone of that business model. But then they also sell a lot of other products and services like Shoppers Drug Mart would in their retail shops. Today, they have 500 stores across the country in the, the largest wow. retail chain of, of pharmacies in that market. And, and the, the managing five or six outlets versus managing 500 outlets is a complete different business model. Yeah. And so the team has really had to develop um, the right policies and procedures, the right sourcing arrangements and logistics to ensure that those businesses do well. And during COVID-19, they had to do a lot of changes, 
both for the safety of their staff and employees, but also a changing marketplace. During COVID-19, people are more likely to receive their pharmaceutical products through home deliveries than going into the store. So they've developed a 30-minute guarantee. If you order something, they have a partnership with, with some delivery outlets to deliver the products that people have ordered online within 30 minutes to residents across Vietnam. So that's a great story to tell in that. Yeah, that's um, amazing. And then maybe another story about a direct investment. We just completed a direct co-investment in a group in Egypt called MaxAB. And MaxAB, what they do, again, this is always, this is something that may not work in Canada. This is something that's very indigenous to, to the local market. But if you go again in North Africa, this is somewhat true in Latin America as well. Most of the stores, when you go into a small village or even urban setting, people go into like the tiendas or the mom and pop shops to buy everything you could possibly imagine. They probably have 250 to 350 SKUs, but stuff that toothpaste, Coca-Cola, flour, sugar, top-up cards, everything you could possibly imagine is, is in these little shops. Um, and these shops have a challenge because the people running them work you know, eight in the morning to 8 p.m. at night, and they don't have time to go out and buy things. So things come to them. So the, the suppliers come with trucks and say, hey, do you need any Coke this, you know, today? And the guys, oh, I'm good. I've got enough for another three days. Come back in three days. I'll need Coke. But it's very inefficient. And so what this business has done is they've, they've developed an app that allows these mom and pop shops to order most, not all, but most of their SKUs through the app and they guarantee that they will deliver what's been ordered the next day. So instead of you know having a very inefficient logistics system, they have, it's almost like they're the Amazon of mom and pop They sell everything the mom and pop shops need, they guarantee it the next day, and they also guarantee that they have the lowest price. That, not that wow. they're cheaper than everybody else, but find like a competing yeah, right. price, they'll match that price. So as a result, interestingly, the big, the Unilevers and the like much prefer getting out of the logistics headache yeah. so what they're doing is they're moving the logistics to max ab because it's more efficient for their clients more efficient for them and they can focus on marketing their product rather than getting their products in the stores which is what max ab does so it's a business that's growing i think 13 percent month over month over the past three years from very humble start but today they have over i think they're up to three thousand uh, employees in, in in just three years and logistics hubs around Egypt providing services to these mom and pop shops. And they're about to off, start to offer financing. So micro entrepreneur loans, to these tiendas, these small mom and pop shops to Amazing. be able to acquire more inventory yeah. so they don't have stock outs and they can increase the revenue and profits as a result through this program. Yeah, it's a, it really is a holistic flywheel where you're essentially helping the local mom and pop shops increase the revenue increase the profits clients are happy because they've got the products that they need without having to walk around to find where they need to go yeah. the suppliers are happy because they get out of the logistics business and you're essentially creating shareholder value and stakeholder value in the process yeah i love that that's those are really great examples to really like bring home for people listening exactly how Serona makes impact. And I'd love to touch on here. We've got a, a bunch of what I get through with the limited time we have left with you here. Talk a little bit about your kind of impact measurement and management framework. I, you, I know you think about it in five broad factors and then, and part of the value that Serona 
adds is to work with your the intermediaries you invest with and through in those direct investments to help them them think more clearly about their impacts as well as that and so those kind of five factors and you can correct me here but gender earth livelihoods integrity and social and can you unpack that a little bit for sure yeah we started impact has been going we started we were one of the founding members of the impact council of the global impact investment network and it's really moved like from 1.0 to 2.0 to 3.0 1.0 was really let's just do investments in emerging markets that's right. because that's impactful <laughs> yep 2.0 is okay but we got to start measuring what are the outcomes from our work and then the 3.0 i think is more this concept of theory of change and what impact do our actions have on the ecosystem and how can we measure that to show that we are achieving what we said we're, we're going to achieve and so those what you're citing are probably where we were at 2.0 okay. which is the impact outcomes and so where we we think we, we can play ball is we try to increase quality jobs in these markets we want to empower women we want to reduce the environmental degradation of business activities through our investments we want to improve governance because a lot of these businesses are small or medium-sized family-run businesses that require a little bit of support when it comes to governance. And then we want to provide community benefits. That can mean the form of local taxes being paid, the, the product depth and breadth, the number of clients that are benefiting from these services. These are the types of benefits we're looking from, from this these impact outcomes. But Gerhard and I, Gerhard, the CEO, and I have had uh, uh, discussions, maybe one might say debates about how much influence do we, these are the stuff that the companies do, but we're a fund of fund, right? Mm -hmm. we, we work with local financial intermediaries and yes, those local financial mayors are making great impact oriented businesses like Pharma City in Vietnam and Max AB in Egypt, but those are the investments they've made. Not like we haven't, like we've influenced them a bit, but th those are their decisions, not ours. So where, what is our theory of change? Our theory of change really lies on the work that we do with those fund managers, those local financial intermediaries, what role can we play in understanding where they're at, what gaps exist in their ESG and impact policies and processes, and what we can do to help them along that continuum. So in the past year, we've rewritten our social environmental management system. We call it SEMS 2.0, Social Environmental Management System. And we launched it at the end of 2020. And part of that is we do a, a more profound ESGI gap analysis and we identify areas of improvement. And then we obligate our partners to move towards filling those gaps and improving on that continuum of impact over, over time. And so we use kind of the SMART goals, SMART measurable, attainable, I always forget what the R stands for. I know, me too. Is really important. Yeah. And so those goals connect what we found as lapses in their procedures and what we expect them to do. And then we provide them the resources that they require to fill in those gaps. And the goal is we will you will find these fund managers in a better state than where we found them. And that we can measure that and that we can show that Serona had a role to play in filling in those gaps. And that's something we're starting to, and we'll present that in our impact report this year, we'll start to show case studies, but also more scientific means of demonstrating the work that we do in this space along the continuum of our theory of change. Yeah, I love that you've a, brought up the kind of theory of change and B, that this kind of illustrates this idea of there being a journey here, right? What I say to most people who are interested in this space is you really have to get comfortable. Don't make perfect the enemy of the good, because if you do, you'll never get started and right. you have to 
start somewhere and get better and build over time. And it's just, if you want to do it well, it's usually pretty hard work. And I think will probably be a lifetime of just continuing to learn and evolve and get better at making the accentuating the positive impacts and mitigating the negatives. Talk a little bit about where you, you mentioned thinking about potentially opening up another fund and, and raising capital right now. Nothing's in, do you have anything investable right now or is everything closed until you do your next raise? So the only, we made our last, we have one space for one more investment in our last private equity fund, oh. likely going to be a direct co-investment. Okay. So with one of our partners and then on the private debt space, we have a little bit of dry powder, but not much. And so where we have the most dry powder is with the emerging markets impact investment fund, which has space to do about six or seven investments. We've got one we're closing this month, a couple that are likely to close in the second half of 2021, early 2022. And then we have another, I think, uh, one and a half years after that to make the last three to four investments. That mandate is focused entirely on Southeast Asia and the Pacific Islands. So we won't be able to look at other opportunities elsewhere. But if all goes well, we will be back in the market with a private equity fund to fund in the second half of 2022. And we're building that pipeline as we speak with existing and new relationships. We're always on the lookout for new relationships that adhere to our ethos of doing good commercial investments in emerging markets with an open mind in doing impact investments that make these communities more resilient. And your your investors are typically foundations, institutions, high net worth individuals, all the above? Yeah. So we only work with accredited investors. You can mm-hmm. thank the regulator for that. It's yeah. probably the right call because it is. Um, these are often long-term investments and commitments you're making. So yeah. if you need money tomorrow, probably yeah. not a good idea to invest in a Serona fund. But if you're willing to uh, invest for a number of years, then the Serona alternative investment funds kind of work for those investors. And so typically they're accredited in Canada, permitted. If, we, if we're being honest, we focus on the permitted client base in Canada. And in the U.S., we work with qualified clients. And this won't mean much to the listeners if they're not of the lingo, the regulatory lingo, but permitted clients are people who have a net worth of $5 million or more Canadian dollars. And for Americans, qualified clients is a two, it used to be $2.1 million, but I just like this month, they upped it to $2.2 million because of inflation. So oh, okay. $2.2 million. I know this is news to me. I learned about yeah. this yesterday oh, interesting. from our, our compliance advisor. Hot off the press. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And, but in other markets, usually it's a million dollars, like a million euros or a million pounds or a million Australian dollars would be the definition of a, a credit investor. Okay. And but we work with high net worth, but we also work with family offices. We have a few pension funds, smaller ones, although, and also governments because GAC was involved in Meta. providing some support. We have received funding from the Development Finance Corporation, the U.S. government's DFI, Development Finance Institution. So yeah. we work with those parties as well. Although the bulk of the private capital comes from smaller institutional and high net worth individuals. Awesome. And so if anybody's listening, I'll link into the show notes, but seronafund.com is the website. I'll also link to your most recent impact report, which I was um, looking through is really great stuff in there. I also love the, I don't know when you redesigned the website, but it looks really great. I love the, the kind of hero images on the main page. And we're bumping right up against time, but I'd love for you to just, can you give a quick plug for CAFID? Cause you, I think you're still the chair of the board there or you're sitting, you're still on the I, I am, yeah. So the Canada Forum for Impact Investment and Development, or CAFID for short, a little bit easier yeah. <laughs> on the tongue, rolls yeah. a little bit more off the tongue. CAFID with two uh, eyes. It's a, yeah, it's a Canadian-based nonprofit 
Business Association that houses all of the supporters, Canadian supporters and international supporters of Canadian involvement in, in emerging uh, markets with an impact orientation. So yeah, sounds very much what we do, but there's yeah. others like us. So some are very focused on certain parts of the, the investment uh, world. So Cordian is a member, they're focused mostly on private debt. They don't do private equity. There's also Deakin, which is based in BC. They're focused mostly on Latin America in energy and uh, and low-income financial inclusion. And, and then FinDev Canada is also a member. That's Canada's development financial institution. And then we have a whole number and host of I- important collaborators, I- either individuals or advisors or even nonprofits that are interested or have a small you know, nonprofit impact-oriented pool of capital that they, they want to, uh, to develop and promote. And really, the association's mandate is to be a, a beacon of light for the industry, provide webinars on, on interesting topics that range the gamut, but also to provide a space for these uh, members to advocate for certain changes in government policy, for example, or to support raising capital from more institutional sources. So to c- kind of bring the, the big boys and girls into this space, so trying to get local banks in Canada to to take this space seriously and other institutional investors like pension funds to ponder about the role that impact investment can play in their asset allocation decisions. So that's CAFID, C-A-F-I-I-D dot C-A, and I'll link to that as well in the show notes. And maybe just a last quick question. This I know this is probably a lot to unpack, so you can abbreviate your answer if you want to here, but what do you see as the what was necessary to really unlocking capital for impact investment in Canada, particularly for impact investments that head abroad. So that's happening in Canada. We're raising and deploying capital here, but sending it abroad because there's a big Im- local domestic impact investment, which is a lot of funding from things like the social, fi- new social finance fund. But sometimes it's harder to you know raise the capital here that's going to be deployed into emerging markets and developing markets. Yeah, it's interesting. I'm reading a book called The, the Road to AUM by, I think the lady's name is Sandra, but I can't remember her last name, but it, it really talks about how do you raise capital for from institutional investors, both in Canada and in emerging markets. And the lessons learned there are quite similar. One has to be focused, it has to be, one has to be clear, and one has to be, have a, a track record of some sort. And, and there, there will be first time fund managers, both focusing on Canada, but also for emerging markets. And one has to have a compelling story around the people and the, the, the strategy that one deploys so that institutional investors or just general investors believe enough in the story to put money to work. It is, it is the hardest part of what we do is to raise funds. And I suspect the same is true of Canadian impact investment groups. So the goal is really to, to do it well and to do it well. In some ways, we have to be better at what we do than commercial only fund managers. I know it sounds a bit... Mm-hmm. Um, bizarre to think of it that way, but we need to be more serious. We need to be more professional. We need to show better results, despite the fact we're we're playing in a smaller pond, so to speak, because we're we're facing skeptical audiences, we're facing people who, when you walk into a room asking for money and you say we're going to be investing with impact, that's a strike against you, even before you open your mouth, <laughs> mm-hmm. and you have to convince them that no, it's in your best interest to do it. It reduces risk and improves your overall return over a long term period of term, and here's why. Yeah. And it's a challenge whether you're investing in Canada or whether you're investing in the U.S. or whether you're investing in emerging markets. You face that skepticism every day. But it's important to be honest about what works and what doesn't 
and, and also to remind them that you aren't in the business of over-promising under-delivering, that you're in the business of demonstrating that you can make money while also making the world a better place. And that is a more sustainable strategy than invest, you know, continue to invest in, in, in sectors that are more sunset-ish. We could maybe have it, we could probably have another podcast yeah, about whether 100%. it makes more sense to invest in renewable energy in Canada than the oil and gas sector. Interesting. It gives you some context into where I'm coming from. Yeah. Well, listen, Serge, we've taken a lot of your time. This has been a really fascinating uh, discussion and some of it I've talked to you about before, but some of it's new for me even, and I hope will be interesting for the, the I'm sure will be interesting for the listeners. So uh, I really appreciate your time and we'll have to have you on again sometime down the road. Hopefully we can actually dive a little more into to CAFID sometime, but for those listening, do check it out. It's a really great association. Serge, thank you. Appreciate your time. Thanks, David. Great to talk to you. Hey, everyone. Thanks so much for listening to the Impact Investing Podcast. If you like what you heard, I'd be incredibly grateful if you left a review on iTunes. And uh, heads up, we're now available on most audio platforms, which includes iTunes, but also Spotify, Google, Overcast, you name it. And also can now use Siri to listen to the podcast by saying, hey, Siri, play the Impact Investing Podcast. Here's to the Impact Investing Podcast. Yeah, just like that. You're listening to the Impact Investing Podcast.